My name is Dr. Tram Jones. Starting in December 2019, my wife and I lived in Haiti. Recently, given the current insecurity, we are out of the country, but we continue to support and work with our partner clinic, Les Moon, with its 53 employees on the ground in the city of Quadibouquet, Haiti. Last week, Ariel Henry, acting prime minister of Haiti, addressed his troubled country. For the past weeks, violence and protests had been mounting. People were on edge. He first called for calm, but then he reached out as if unaware of its lethality and touched the third rail of Haitian politics. He stated that henceforth, he was removing the government subsidies on fuel. As if a match had been struck in a pool of simmering gasoline, the country exploded. Violent protesters invaded the streets. After nine days, the damage is only beginning. We are hearing more and more that the time has come for deshoucage. To understand what is going on, you have to know a little bit about the last 30 years of Haitian history. Let's delve into that for a second before we describe the incredible devastation wrought over the last nine days in Haiti. Let's start with deshoucage. For 30 years until 1986, Papa Doc and Baby Doc were the dictators that led Haiti. They oppressed the country through their paramilitary police, the Tonton Makut. Finally, in 1986, Baby Doc fled after countrywide protests. At first, there was glee. The tormentors of the Haitian people had lost power. In the days and weeks that followed, the people turned on the symbols of their suffering. Their leaders said it was necessary to deshouquer, or uproot, everything that reminded them of their pain. The deshoucage started out innocently enough. Headquarters of the secret police and the homes of the dictators were destroyed. But it quickly turned violent. Former Tonton Makuts were dragged into the streets and summarily executed. Buildings were burned. Violence spread like wildfire. Since that time, I have always heard whispers of that word. When things get bad in Haiti, there is always concern that things could turn to an uprooting. But now, it really does seem that the country is going there. And why are we here? This moment is the convergence of several different threads. The first thread is Ariel Henry. Henri is the last tenuous thread of the former government. As many of you will know, in 2021, the Haitian president, Jovenel Moise, was assassinated in his home. Elections had not been held on time, which meant that the legislature only had 10 remaining elected officials at the time. The terms of the rest had ended. The chief of the Supreme Court had just died of COVID. In the days before, Jovenel had asked his prime minister to resign. He had named a replacement, Ariel Henry, but the replacement had not been installed yet. And in this perfect time of chaos, he was killed. The U.S. initially appointed the former prime minister to lead the country, and then later changed their mind and chose Henri. In the months following, it came out that Henri had had a phone call in the early hours after Moise's death with one of the assassins. This fueled speculation that he was involved in the plot. In the wake of his appointment, a number of Haitian political parties came together and created a coalition called the Montana Group. Their hope was that the United States would drop their support for Henri and endorse them as head of state. This has set up a political split between the Montana group on one side and Henri on the other. The U.S. has urged the two sides to come to an accord, but so far the two groups want nothing to do with each other. It must be said that Henri is vastly unpopular. No one, including the United States, believes that he is the answer. While the U.S. seems to believe that there is some reasoning for picking Henri, given that he was a link to the last government, they seem hesitant to declare the Montana group the leaders without an election. 
In the meantime, the country is far too unstable and dangerous to hold elections. The second thread is violence. We've talked about this many times on the podcast. If you ask the average person on the street, they will tell you that this is the biggest problem in Haiti right now. 75% of the capital city is controlled by armed gangs. We've described this in enough detail, so let's not belabor the point today. The third thread is gasoline. Aside from the obvious need for transportation, in a country with almost no government electricity, generators with gasoline are necessary for any business, especially hospitals. Haiti is among the list of countries around the world that subsidizes the price of gasoline. This means that while the price of the pump in the U.S. has gone to as high as $5 over the last year, Haitian gas prices never sell higher than $2 a gallon. The government makes up the difference with funds from its treasury. Every economist would tell a country that gas subsidies don't make economic sense. They cost the government massive amounts of cash. They lead to shortages. The problem is that it is politically expedient. Politicians can dedicate government funds to lower the price of gas instead of long-term investments like schools and economic growth because results are immediately seen. The problem comes when these subsidies are removed. Rarely are they removed during good economic times. Usually, during a recession, the government can no longer afford to pay the subsidy and is forced to reverse course. And unsurprisingly, people in the midst of a recession are angry when prices rise drastically on something as essential as gasoline. And this is not just Haiti. This happens around the world. Some of you will remember the Ecuadorian protests in 2018 related to gas prices. Or the Kazakhstan protests this year that led to Russian troops entering the country to put down the unrest. All related to getting rid of fuel subsidies. In Haiti, the government actually tried to raise the price of gasoline in 2019, but this led to massive protests and a reversal of policy. Currently, the Haitian government spends $400 million a year to subsidize gasoline. That's about 20% of government revenue. On a monthly basis, they cost the government double the state payroll, something that's difficult to swallow during a year when police officers are not being paid. As gas prices around the world have risen over the last year, the Haitian government, which receives almost no tax revenue, could not keep up. And this meant that no gasoline could be purchased because there was no money. For months, there was little to no gasoline in the country. What little there is, is only available on the black market for between $20 and $32 a gallon. And last week, Henri finally announced the government could not continue. The last thread is the cost of living crisis. The cost of living crisis that has hit the United States is exponentially worse in countries with little margin. The cost of food, most of which is imported, has gone up by around 50% in Haiti. When you have no margin, that means starvation. Now, over the last few weeks, protests had been occurring, apparently financed by opposition groups. They started to call for attacks on banks, unless the cost of living immediately improved. In response, Henri announced an increase in the price of gasoline. Despite the logic from an economic sense, it was an almost incomprehensibly terrible decision to announce while Port-au-Prince was primed like a powder keg. Immediately, crowds flooded the street. There was a mixture of those with good and bad intentions. Many, probably the majority, were fed up with the inhuman situation in Haiti. As Martin Luther King said, riots are the voice of the unheard. Certainly, there were bad actors too. Black market gasoline sellers who saw the decision as cutting into their profits. Tax evaders who had been targeted by the government. But either way, a metaphorical bomb went off in Port-au-Prince. Roadblocks were set up throughout the capital, paralyzing traffic. Deschoucage set in. Store after store was broken into and looted. 
Building after building was burned. The wealthy areas of the capital were invaded by protesters, the smell of smoke and the sound of gunfire creating a terrifying mix. Foreign embassies closed down. The Dominican Republic evacuated their embassy and stationed troops along their land border with Haiti. The violence spread throughout the country. Vaccine stores were smashed and seed stocks were destroyed in the coastal regions. North of Port-au-Prince, a World Food Program warehouse was looted and then burned. By day four of the protests, Barbecue, the most powerful gang leader in the country, led a march through his territory, waving leaves, chanting that the people were hungry, and calling for continued deshoucage until the resignation of Henri. It was a powerful indictment, as people were not sure which side of the protests the gangs would land on. The Dominican president flew to the United States to meet with Vice President Harris and declared the situation in Haiti a low-intensity civil war. For those on the ground, it didn't seem far off the mark. The worsening situation over the last three years follows a sickeningly predictable routine. There are generally episodes of about a week of outright war in parts of Port-au-Prince. These are followed then by a veneer of calm, during which there is rampant kidnapping, theft, and murder. These capture less of the international attention. And then there's another week of outright war. It is difficult to decide at this point which this will be. Is this the cliff that we've all been waiting for? Or is it another week of violence? Will this be a turn to complete anarchy to the point that other countries can no longer ignore it? Only time will tell. Over the past two years, myself and everyone related to Haiti feel somewhat like Chicken Little. Every time someone asks us about Haiti, we tell people how terrible and inhumane the situation is. But then we say the same thing the next month. And the next month, Haiti continues to reach new lows in regards to livability for its citizens. At some point, the bottom will fall out. It is sad, but most of us are waiting expectantly for this moment, because then perhaps something can be done. In the meantime, it feels like a country dying a long, agonizing death. 